Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome back to the Cyber Law Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Pollack, cybersecurity attorney and partner at Whiteford, Taylor, and Preston. Very glad to have you back. Keep those questions, comments, or discussion points coming. Call me at 410-917-5189 or email me at spollock, that's P-O-L-L-O-C-K at WTPlaw.com. Another week, more ransomware, more cyber attacks, more events in the news, and I'm really excited to have Chris Lohr from Solace Security on, one of the more well-known names in the security business. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Spencer. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Let's uh, let's jump right into it because there's a lot that we kind of got to pick apart here. Obviously, ransomware is still the hot topic out there. You know, it's what we're seeing consistently and over and over in the news. What is your opinion and kind of what is your insight right now into the state of ransomware? So my opinion on the state of ransomware is it's not going away. Obviously, I mean, we've seen a lot of things in the news. Seems like the governments overall are more focused on how ransomware affects maybe them directly. Uh, and they don't care as much about the just the SMB, who is the for the, the majority of the time, they are the victims of these types of ransomware attacks. So, I mean, it's it's an interesting time because a lot of stuff's been going on in the news. Of course, the, the biggest one is uh, the shutting down or what is to believe to be the shutting down of Revil, uh, which is probably the number one or number two ransomware group out there in terms of attacks and revenue or however you want to categorize them. And so, you know, a lot of people on the surface might think, hey, look, this is a this is an indicator that things are shifting down, that ransomware is finally getting the attention it deserves. And and, and we start we should start to see some type of decline as far as ransomware attacks go. However, what we see today is that other people are filling that void very quickly. And so we see other groups, whether they're groups that have been known before, but potentially just not as active, maybe because they weren't the first ones to get to the victims like these other groups were, uh, and other groups that are maybe new in the uh, environment and in the ransomware world, and and, and they're make, trying to make a name for themselves. So it's an interesting time. I think we're coming up for air a little bit with this Revil shutdown, but I really don't see any type of slowdown uh, for the short or medium term as far as ransomware goes. Yeah, it just feels like it keeps increasing weekly, you know, even though the government has come out, you know, thankfully, after Colonial Pipeline, after the meatpacking, after Microsoft, and, you know, kind of said they have these red lines. But in terms of what the Biden administration has come out with their red lines, do you think that's sufficient, insufficient? Are they doing enough? Could they do more? Where do you fall on that? Well, I think they definitely, there needs to be more done. I mean, when when you're talking with law enforcement, and we've been dealing with law enforcement for quite some time. You can tell just by the information that they are collecting and the individuals that you're talking to that there's just not enough resources focused and dedicated on these efforts. Um, I think the only time that law enforcement really gets a good shove the right way is when somebody either is in the news big time, so it's somewhat of a PR issue uh, or something, someone that's you know directly connected to the government, whether it's DOD or otherwise, it doesn't really matter. I think that's the only thing that kicks things into high gear. I mean, 
I mean, I've worked with companies in the past that they've had very good, let's just say they've had very good and tight relationships uh, with politicians in, in Washington and and very, uh, let's just say, astute and uh, have been around a long time. And they've actually made phone calls to them. And, the, and I'm talking about people that have these people on speed dial and they've gotten nowhere. And so I just don't see, uh, you know, I guess it's a step forward from what we've seen in the past. Uh, but I really am not seeing enough action uh, be, being taken place. I mean, and, and the problem is, is yes, the U.S. is very powerful and has a lot of um, ways to deal with this, but really it comes down to a global effort. I mean, you have to have these different law enforcement, especially at the federal levels uh, across the board, overseas, all ready to cooperate and align. And who knows? you know, how the laws work and all that kind of good stuff about extradition and all that kind of good stuff. So that's one thing. And the other thing is, is I think this is even a bigger issue. And this is where I think the politicians and the media come in is that they just like to label this stuff as Russia, right? It's Russia, Russia, Russia. Well, we don't know if it is the Russian government. It could be. It could be that they're either turning a blind eye to these guys. It could be that, you know, some people have thrown out that some of these ransomware groups, these major ransomware groups have some connection to the FSB, but no one has provided any evidence or proof of that. So I think it's very easy, especially for we'll call them the mainstream media, not as much as more of the pure tech media. They are so quick to want to draw that connection directly to someone like Vladimir Putin that it's not really telling the story to the public like it needs to be. I mean, I mean, yeah, let's just say these guys may have some connections, but most likely these individuals are not employees of the Russian government in any shape, form or way. And so the idea that you can just say it's a government issue and there can be some kind of sanctions done or something like that, I don't think that's going to be very fruitful. Uh, it's going to be it's more of a organized crime type deal. So you have to work together from a federal law enforcement perspective and go go after it like it's organized crime. I mean, I haven't looked at it lately, but if you look back in the in the 60s and 70s, uh, when there was a lot of work done against organized crime in the US and, and in Italy and so on and so forth. I mean, this it's not this similar to that in that you have these groups that have massive organizations. They're just not sitting in the in the back room of Vinny's uh, butcher shop they're yeah. they're working online together to, to do the crime yeah exactly they're not just in that back room having a good time with this that's yeah. right exactly right and they're they're pretty focused right and they're pretty good at, at covering their tracks but with now that the one thing i will say is we don't know the details around revil shutdown right we know their websites were shut down we know there was some dns stuff that was taken down. And so, you know, from a technical perspective, they were shut down. We don't know what happened behind the scenes, but we have seen other groups in the past uh, and the recent past where videos and stuff have been placed on YouTube, whether it's Russian law enforcement or someone else, you know, cracking down and and, and going after these people and, and showing that they're, you know, getting, you know, have warrants or whatever the case may be in that particular country and and taking people into custody. In the case of Revil, we're not seeing any of that. So it's it's somewhat, uh, you know, on one side, you're like, hey, great, they're shut down. But on the other side is you really haven't seen any information whatsoever, anybody taking credit or anybody doing anything about this particular situation. So to me, that's a little bit of, um, 
I don't know if you want to call it a red flag, but but there's there's too much mystery uh, for me to be comfortable with with what they're doing right now, because you usually would see something by this time of somebody giving some indication that some arrests were made or people, you know, they have, point, mm-hmm. you know, they have people of interest or whatever, but you're not seeing any of that. Yeah, it's, it seems like it's a very quiet on that front, which I'm I'm hoping is not just like the window dressing, you know, those hard statements without the uh, actual meat behind it. But, you know, the other part, you know, I've read an article recently about allowing private companies to launch proactive, um, not proactive, but basically attack back after they're attacked. And obviously there's a law in the U.S. that prohibits that based on national security interests. But it is an interesting concept because of how inundated the government is. And I don't know if they have the resources to allow private companies to almost go on the offensive. Obviously, there's the other side to it of a you could start a war with a mm-hmm. the China or a Russia. But I mean, what are your thoughts about this? How do companies I guess first, where do you think should companies be allowed to attack back? And if not, what are they what should they be doing? I do believe they should be able to attack back. And I, I think that should be there should be some guardrails around that. So meaning that one of the big arguments against attacking back is the argument that, you know, these threat actors, these bad guys, uh, they're taking over innocent people's machines that are unaware that their machines are even being used in these attacks or they're using resources of a, maybe of another organization. Maybe they've somehow hacked into somebody's cloud resources and are leveraging that, at, you know, to, to do their attacks. So the, the argument is, is if you attack back, you could be attacking innocent people and not actually attacking the root cause. I feel that that argument has been in place for a very, very long time. And I feel in today's world that there's enough educated people out there and enough people that are that have the, the right experience and the right technical prowess uh-huh. to be able to, to attack back in a meaningful way. So, but again, there needs to be guardrails, right? So let's just take for an example, a command and control server. So command and control servers are widely used in these attacks for different reasons. Uh, we, you know, obviously they're used just to simply be somewhat of a barometer of the attack to know, okay, look, the attack happened. It was success- successful. We attacked, you know, 1500 machines and they all got encrypted. And then, and then we see it where these command and control servers are actually being used as part of the exfiltration efforts, meaning the data gets pulled back from the victim organization and stored here. So those command and control servers, to me, in my opinion, are fair game. I mean, if someone uh, identifies a command and control server or servers out there, I mean, they should be fully authorized and, and protected by the government. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, we, you know, we, we, we've done enough investigation to know this is a command and control server, you know, with some percentage of certainty. And with that, these are the steps that we are allowed to, to take. And so uh, whether that means you know, going and pulling data off those command and control servers to preserve it and then taking it down or whatever. I think that's a valid, that's a valid way to do it. I also think that, and I've seen this in things that I've worked on is there are times where the attackers do slip up. Uh, they, we've seen them where they've left a text file, for example, on a, on a random machine. And that text file has, uh, the threat actors' uh, credentials or, or email address or whatever the case may be that they have spun up to use as a, a way to, you know, so these guys will exfiltrate data and put it on some type of public 
file yeah. sharing site, right? And so these guys will, will leave some of that stuff behind because they're kind of setting all that stuff up and using the client's network as kind of their, their pivot point. And so that information can be very beneficial and that information could be used to do another attack back. And so I think that's another good course of action. The, the other point though is, is if you attack back, are you just getting those kind of fringe affiliates out there and you're never getting to the root cause? So, you know, is it worth the efforts and the, and the blood and sweat and all that type of stuff? And, and, and that, that's a tough one really. But I, I, and to another point of your question, the, I believe that the government is fully armed and capable of attacking back. I think that they probably view if they did do that on behalf of American businesses, that it would become more of a military action and less of a law enforcement action. Mm -hmm. And again, this is just my speculation. No one's ever told me this, but that's kind of how I see it there, that they just don't want to start a war through their actions, right? So if you have, if you take the Air Force as an example, and, and they have a they have a cyber task force that's a, attacking back, and and they do attack back, and let's say they hit the wrong thing, um, they attack back and they hit a utility or something over there, that's a that's a bigger deal than than somebody else. So um, what I do believe that the federal government has the know-how, the tools, and the resources to do it. I think that's a little bit of a dangerous. Uh, group to do it. But I do believe that from a law enforcement perspective, I think if there was a way to attack back and to make it quite clear that it's not driven by or it shouldn't be defined as some military action, I think that's going to be the best way to go about it. Yeah. I mean, you make a lot of good points. It's it's a tough line to straddle because I agree. It's We definitely have the the, the capacity and the ability to do it. I'm just I'm almost wondering, it's like, why why have we kept gloves on for so long? And, you know, what is it going to take almost like a cyber 9-11 to really for the gloves to come off? I hope not. Um, but as you know, we're, we're dealing with some nefarious people and some threat actors and some countries who just like to inflict pain and damage. Um, but with shifting. No, with, yeah, with no. I mean, I always say people, this is the it is the highest reward, lowest risk business out there is, is okay. ransomware attacks. Yeah, if I want, I, I agree. Look, if I have ever decided to shift careers into the criminal em enterprise, I guess I'll, I'll start coding to figure out how to get in that and I'll move to Russia. Uh, I mean, it's big money and the chances yeah. of you getting caught, indicted, extradited, indicted, put in jail for some reasonable amount of time. I mean, think about it. It's pretty, you probably get luckier uh, winning $100 million in the lottery. Exactly. Disclaimer, I'm not going to do that, nor will I ever do that. So if anyone out there, law enforcement is listening, don't worry, I'm not a hacker, nor am I going to be a hacker. And and full um, disclaimer, I know Spencer does not does not have the mental capacity to do that either. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to support him on that one. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, I'll, I'll take that. You know, as long as I don't get some the FBI knocking down my door about well, my if hat. You, if you do film it, I think we'll get a lot of views. There you go. If you there do. Um, so I guess I got two last questions. The other thing I read in the news was about MFA multi-factor authentication, almost being a silver bullet for companies to prevent breaches. Is that something, do you agree with that? So, you know, the, using the word or the term silver bullet, I've always been against that. I mean, in my past lives of, of being an IT executive and having to go pitch in front of a board, uh, they always seem to want to jump on that term silver bullet. You know, you, you tell them, hey, we need to do this or that. And they're like, oh, yeah, and they use that term silver bullet. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
nothing's a silver bullet technology wise, right? We wish it, we wish that, that was the case. With MFA, here's the deal with MFA. It's been around forever. I always tell people this. I mean, the uh, the my first job out of college uh, was in the late 90s. And we had MFA. I know we had MFA in 97, 98, 99. Okay, we had it. Um, and so it's been around forever. And it's 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 somewhat pathetic that it hasn't been more implemented in that amount of time. I mean, it 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 really it really is. I mean, I hear every excuse in the book on why they can't why people can't do MFA. Oh, you know, our users are too old or not sophisticated enough, or you know, they don't want to use their own devices or whatever. I mean, it, it just it's 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 ludicrous, especially with how cheap it is in today's world the the fact is is the way the uh, most of these ransomware groups work is they work off credential compromises so either the group themselves has some methodology or some tactic or technique to get someone's credentials whether that's typically through a fish or maybe they figured out a vulnerability like we've seen with some of these sonicwell vulnerabilities where they've been able to bypass mfa and get an environment and then therefore you know, harvest more credentials, or what really the more prevalent way is, is they go out in the dark web in the marketplace and they buy credentials. I mean, people, other people are out there finding ways to grab credentials and then they turn around and they not only just sell these credentials, they actually provide screenshots and stuff proving that these credentials work. And what I've also learned since then is, is that if the credentials don't work and you've bought them through from this marketplace that whomever you bought them from has some type of money back guarantee, which is very strange, but it, it, that is the way it works. And these credentials are not expensive. They're fairly cheap. So these ransomware groups go out and do credentials. So a lot of the times where you see these people get in, whether it's through you know remote desktop connection, which arguably should be turned off, or VPN or whatever the case may be, it's because they don't have MFA turned on and, and whatever for whatever reason their credentials got compromised and they got in. So that that is not a silver bullet, but it's going to head off a majority of these attacks. And like I tell people, these ransomware groups typically are going to go find the easier fish to catch. They're not going to spend too much try time trying to get into your environment unless you really have something there of, of immense value. The other thing about it, but the thing with MFA is, and why you don't want to call it a silver bullet, is because there have been times and times recently where MFA has been defeated in a way, meaning that there's been a vulnerability, like I, I talked about the Sonicwell one, where they had, if you had a VPN with, with MFA, well, with this vulnerability, they could have just skirted around. So you don't want, especially in the SMB space where, you know, you're dealing with owners and, and, and that type of thing that typically aren't very technical, they're very, they're going to be very quick to hang their hat oh we had mfa and you told me it was going to work and now we still got attacked so yeah. it's just one piece of the pie uh, but it's a very very vital piece on email compromises and spencer you know this as well as i do and you actually deal with them more than i do mm -hmm. but in email compromises i mean if they had mfa enabled the likelihood of that event happening drops to almost zero uh, and so uh, especially if you've done it the right way uh, where we've seen those fail is where people have either you know We've heard it many times where, oh, yeah, we had that planned. Uh, we had some other projects that took priority. We're going to get to that. You know, one thing is with schools. Schools are like, look, we're going to roll that out in the summertime. 
we're not going to roll it out in the middle of school year. It's too disruptive to our teachers and staff and whomever. We're going to roll it out to the summertime. Okay, roll it out in the summertime. They get to the summertime, and what do they say? Oh, well, you know, with all this stuff that's been going on, we haven't had time to roll out MFA because we're just getting prepared for the teachers and students to return to school in a month or whatever. And you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense because a few months ago you said you were waiting for the window. I mean, I've talked to schools and other people that they buy equipment six or nine months ahead of time, and it just sits in a corner like good stuff. And they wait till the summertime to do it. But I think when they get to the summertime, they forget how small of a window that is. And so we really have to push back and say there's no more excuses. I mean, I've heard, hey, I heard one not too long ago. It said, oh, well, you know, we have bus drivers and we don't want them to use their mobile devices. And I'm like, well, you're I don't even know why your bus drivers fit into this category, what we're talking about. But we're not saying that if you have MFA, you're then allowing your bus driver to get on a mobile device while they're driving a bus. We're just saying when they're done with the bus and they got to get in or whatever the case may be, they have to have MFA enabled. And the other thing real quick is, you know, MFA, a lot of people don't do a good job explaining MFA. And if it's properly implemented, and let's just pick on Microsoft because that's probably the easiest one. Most people run 365. It works on what's something called a risky login. So it's not sitting there prompting you every single freaking time for your MFA. It's looking for particular changes, whether it's a new machine, a different IP address, maybe even a different geolocation, whatever the case may be, that's when it's pinging you. So people just want to use any excuse not to add anything. It's the same argument we had for people not wanting to change their passwords or wanting to create passwords. But I'm telling you, once people do MFA and they enroll it that first time, it's easy. And the other thing that I tell people, and I explain to this, I said, look, you're doing MFA for work, but when you learn how easy this is, you realize that your bank probably bank probably has this as an option for free that you can do. Your social media accounts all have the ability to do multi-factor authentication. So once you figure out how easy this is, it's pretty darn easy. Uh, you just need to make sure you just need to take a little bit of time to plan it out, to do it right, uh, but to do it. But again, that's going to be one giant check mark that's going to help you out, but it's not necessarily the silver bullet. There's tons of other things you can do. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole problem with MFA. It just sounds like such a great and e easy fix. But as you just mentioned, I mean, there's no easy fix to any of this. Um, there, yeah, you're right. I, I think another one is doing encryption, like file-based encryption on important files. That So if an attacker does get in your environment and does have domain admin credentials, there's another layer of authentication on there that so if they do copy those files, they're encrypted, so they're worth nothing to them, right? So I think that's a big deal. I mean, we have lots of discussions about this with people, and they have maybe one specific directory, a couple of directories that they have a lot of concern for if those files get leaked out. So do some, spend a little extra money and, and, and put some protection on there. I mean, that's really important. And I think, you know, with this Kaseya deal, it's getting labeled as supply chain attack, but it's really not. It's more of a vulnerability, zero day. Uh, but you can go back to the solar winds. Uh, that's, that is that is supply chain attack. But vendor management is another big deal. So you, we, we've talked about tools with MFA and with, with file-based encryption, but there's got to be some process changes as well. So knowing your vendors and really holding them accountable to some type of security standard is going to be very important especially your key vendors do you need to be concerned about the guy that you know comes and changes your light bulbs every two or three months no but the the, the vendors that have either access to your systems or to access to your data or are providing you some type of critical service or product 
that's just as big of a deal, in my opinion, as MFA and these other things. And that's more of a process issue and less of a tool issue. That's right. I, I call it ranking pain points. Like who's going to yeah. cause you the most pain and when? The, the light bulb, the guy who changes the light bulb, that's not going to cause you pain. But people have got access to your systems, your information. That's that's a heavy pain, heavy pain point. It but is. It, it's hard to get people to wrap their heads around it just because it's a it is, it's a complex issue and the topic is unique and it's hard to ask questions about things we don't understand. So a lot of times we don't ask questions, but, you know, it's good to have people like you out there um, self-serving. It's good to have people like me out there to help kind of guide and assist. Um, but I guess to wrap it up, what what is one major thought you have about this that somebody that the audience could take away just one sentence you need to be fully prepared for some type of ransomware or ransomware like event to occur in your environment and that preparation involves knowing who you're going to call how that party or those parties are going to react and what are the responsibilities you're going to have in that particular situation um, it's going to happen. Uh, hopefully it doesn't happen to you, but if, but when it does happen, you need to be fully prepared. You, you need to have the minimum number of surprises and, uh, you need to be ready to handle it, um, composed, but head on. Those are great recommendations, Chris. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, and definitely have you back soon to, uh, to the audience. Hope you enjoyed this one. Very interesting. Keep the questions, comments coming. Um, once again, Chris, thanks for jumping on. And um, we'll see everybody on the next episode. Have a great day.